Hey, in this past month, I had a chance to see a couple of weddings from a different vantage point. I sat in the audience viewing the bride and the groom with their backs to me. Typically, they're in front of me, facing me. And I am standing next to the groom in that glorious moment when he first sees his bride. And every time, every single time, she is stunning. And she is beautiful. And when she turns the corner to walk down the aisle, there are often tears. Tears in the eyes of the parents. Tears in the eyes of the bridemaids that have preceded her. And sometimes even tears in the groom that's eagerly waiting to take her hand. It is a joy-filled moment, and what follows is a party to feast and to celebrate and to eat and to drink together, to make toast and silly and serious speeches. In all my years, I've heard some great toasts and some that are a little less remarkable. But weddings were no less festive in the days of Jesus. And it is at a wedding that he chooses to do his first sign. I don't think that's accidental. The theme that we are centering on in the study of John's gospel is this overflowing life that he keeps talking about. The first chapter was all about new beginnings. In the second chapter here, we encounter this miracle at a wedding. Read along with me. It's in John chapter 2. It'll be on the screen behind me. Or if you use the, the Bible in front of you, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. John 2, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Great story. Surprising twists and turns, a party on the brink of disaster. Jesus gently rebuking his mother. A master of the feast breathing a huge, huge sigh of relief. And ordinary water turning to extraordinary wine. And did you notice what John called it? Here he didn't call it a miracle, he calls it a sign. Why does John call it a sign? 
Because Jesus' miracles are never naked displays of power. They point to something beyond themselves, to something deeper. They are intended to reveal something about his person. So this morning, let's try to do three things. Number one, let's break down this story a bit, give a little bit of its historical context. Number two, let's ask what the sign points to. And then thirdly, let's ask how that all changes us. Pray with me. Father, this morning, thank you for being here with us. And I pray that we could hear your voice this morning. And that voice would penetrate deep into who we are and would bring life and bring power and bring transformation. Thank you, Father, that you have good gifts to give each of us this morning. Move us to a place where we have faith, where we have an expectation, where we are willing to believe that, God, you desire to speak to us, to change us. Help us find that center place of rest and divine rest, that place where you're able to lead us then to greener pastures, to quiet waters, where if that voice is still this morning and quiet, we're able to discern and to hear it. Lead us now, God, through the power of Christ. Amen. Amen. So number one, the first thing this morning is, let's talk about this story. A Jewish ceremony usually took place late in the evening after a great feast. Next, there was a noisy and joyous parade It would march back to the home of the groom for an open house with entertainment that could have lasted up to a week. Some of you parents who have hosted parties, you have been dead after one night. Can you imagine an entire week? In Judaism, if you were a member of the village and a wedding or funeral procession passed you, you were obligated to join it. Perhaps the streets were busy that day. Maybe that's why they ran out of wine. Well, Jesus, Mary, these five new disciples are invited to this affair. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, there is the potential of a great social embarrassment. I don't know if we can truly understand what this meant to a Jewish family in the first century. It was their sacred duty to provide refreshments for their guests. And panic must have shook that room when they heard those words, there is no wine. Mary sees the problem. And she believes that Jesus can fix it. Now, why does she think that? She's never seen him do a miracle. Jesus lived in many respects a quiet and ordinary life for his first 30 years. But on the other hand, how could she forget what the angel said about him prior to his birth? Who could not be astonished at the wisdom and knowledge he displayed as he grew up? Or perhaps she asks, only because as the firstborn son and as a widowed mother, she has learned to rely on his resourcefulness. Got to think that Jesus 
was probably pretty resourceful. Jesus the carpenter provided for her in the absence of Joseph. But look at his response. It's, it's surprising. Now, some translations try to soften it, but his response to her is abrupt. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this word for woman is courteous, but not normally endearing. To understand his abruptness, I think we have to understand what he means by the phrase, my hour has not yet come. And it's really fairly simple for us to do this because John will use this same phrase six more times throughout this gospel. And by the end, it becomes clear that the primary meaning of this phrase is it describes the time when Jesus will die. In John 17, verse 1, when Christ offered his prayer to the Father, uh, when his betrayal and arrest is imminent, here is how he began that prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you. So even here at this wedding, Jesus is aware of his mission. Yet throughout his ministry, he seeks to hide various aspects of who he is, to not disclose his full mission. He'll do that in an unfolding kind of way over the three and a half years. But it's clear that Jesus operates according to the timetable of his father and not others' demands. So at this wedding... He finds, him, he finds himself thinking about his mission, perhaps even his death. To his mother, I believe he is saying, the calling of my father surpasses any human expectation or even any human relationship. And the abruptness of his response shows perhaps the tension that he felt. This, ironically, is a very similar conversation Jesus had with his parents at age 12, Joseph and Mary lost Jesus at a festival in Jerusalem. When they found him, Jesus was interacting with the most learned men of the day. Joseph and Mary said the exact same things that you've said when you've lost your child. Why have you done this to us? Why did you cause us so much distress? To this rebuke, Jesus replied, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Oh, let me get back to my page here. Back to our story. Whatever nuances took place in the exchange between Mary and Jesus, she does not perceive an absolute no from him. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus, acting with personal freedom in submission to the Father, turns to these six great stone pots used for purification. For such an occasion, the family would borrow or procure the largest and most beautiful vessels they could find. And then whenever guests arrived, the water from these pots was poured over their hands in a ritual of cleansing. Now, for first century Jews... Purification rites or rituals were essential. They were core to their vision of personal holiness. 
The details involving cleansing rituals in the rabbinic text were elaborate and continuously perfected. One book of instruction on the purification of vessels was no less than 30 chapters in length. It is these vessels that Jesus instructs the servants to fill to the brim with water. But to everyone's surprise and delight, when the water is served, it has been turned to wine. Now, the last important detail there in verse 11, as a result of this sign, these new disciples enter into a deeper understanding and faith in Jesus. He was enlarged in their minds. Jesus proves himself over time. He cements his identity over time, not by mere words alone, but by what he does. Okay? So that gives us a little bit of a context and a background to appreciate this story. Secondly, Jesus said there's a sign here. And can we learn anything with regard to what this sign, changing water to wine, means? Well, these great stone vessels holding so much water, I think they are a picture of something deeper. I believe they represent the ritual of Jewish law, the old covenant. The ritual laws detailing ceremonial washing were there for a purpose. If you lived in that time, if you were a Jew in that time, every time you washed your hands or cleaned the pot, it was to be a reminder of your need to be clean or cleansed in order to approach God and relate honestly to him. But something happened along the way. The worshipers, rather than thinking about internal cleansing, became fixated on the ceremonial washing as an end in itself. Thus the practice had become dry and barren and meaningless. They assumed the ceremonial rituals were not merely pointers to a greater reality, but they themselves were the reality. In other words, if you practiced these things meticulously, you could hope to establish personal holiness. That's why they were forever adding new and fastidious regulations. So here comes Jesus into this whole world, this context. And here are these vessels that people have been coming to this wedding, washing their hands. And he changes that water to wine. What is he saying by that? I believe Christ is saying that I have come to atone for your sin. I have come to cleanse for your sin. The ritual laws will no longer be needed. They will be fulfilled by me. Spiritually, I will pour out a new wine. The new wine, the wine of the new covenant. And I will pour it out not with clenched fists, but with extravagance. Note how the guests are amazed at its quality and amazed at its abundance. The miracle turns upside down the wisdom of the day regarding cleansing. Jesus is saying, it's not about cleaning hands. It's all about cleaning hearts. Now, our need today is no less, is it? Our need for a clean heart is no less today than it was then. We need cleansed. Cleansed from what? 
We need cleanse from our shame, and we need cleanse from our guilt. Now, shame and guilt are similar, but they're slightly different. Shame is a little more general. And I liked what one Old Testament scholar, David Atkinson, said. He said, shame is the sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. It's a good definition. Shame is the sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. We know that something is wrong, but we can't identify it, let alone admit it. So shame is more vague, more general. Guilt is more specific. Guilt comes from a troubling emotion from a specific action that I've taken or maybe a specific action that I've not taken. To illustrate shame, let me borrow from an illustration shared by Tim Keller from the 1941 movie version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody seen that recently? I didn't think so. At one point in the story, Dr. Jekyll throws a dinner party. At the party, he tells his guests of a proposed experiment to separate the good from evil in every person. Now this, as you might expect, shocks the guests. And they say, but see here, see here, they say, aren't you rather presumptuous in assuming there is evil in all of us? Dr. Jekyll answers back. We would be hypocrites. If we all did not admit it, we have all had thoughts we could not care to have published or shout out loud. Our desires aren't always confirmed in a drawing room. And as Christians, shouldn't we face it? Close quote. Well, when he says this, everyone in the room gets very uncomfortable at this thought of having all their inner thoughts being revealed. Maybe it's uncomfortable to you as well. It's very uncomfortable to me. Right? Right? It would be a nightmare if all of your thoughts of your heart and if all the thoughts of your mind were published or became audible or suddenly appeared on the wall in public. Not one of us would be able to live with that. Not even a few hours. To lose control of what people know is going on inside of us, that would be a disaster. So what this thought experiment means is that we all know, all of us know, we are not what we should be. We all live with a degree of shame. Or we would not have any trouble with this idea. How about guilt? I like the image drawn in regarding guilt from C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. C.S. Lewis in this book tells the story of how a young boy named Eustace becomes a dragon, and a very unhappy dragon at that. Eustace steals a gold armband and puts it on, only to find that his greed turns him into a dragon, and the armband is, ex is excruciatingly tight on his dragon foot. One night, in the midst of his pain and frustration, Eustace encounters a huge lion who tells the boy to follow it to a high mountain well. So he follows him, and there's a beautiful garden, lush with vegetation and trees. And in the middle of this garden, there's a well with water as clear as anything he had ever seen. 
Eustace longs to bathe his aching foot in the cool water. But the lion says, undress yourself first. That seems silly to Eustace because dragons don't wear clothes. But then he remembers that dragons like snakes do what? Yeah, they shed their skins. So Eustace scratches his skin and the scales begin falling off. And soon his whole skin peels away. But when he puts his foot into the water, he sees that it is just as rough and scaly as before. He continues scratching at the second dragon skin. And what does he realize? There is yet another underneath. Finally, the lion says, you will have to let me undress you. Well, Eustace is very afraid, but he's desperate to get into that water. And so he lays terrified flat on his back. The first tear is painfully deep and goes almost to his heart as the lion begins to peel away the skin. Surely death will follow, Eustace believes. And with the gnarled mess of dragon skin now cut away, the lion picks up Eustace, holds him, and then throws him into the water. Initially, the water stings, but soon it is perfectly delicious. Why? He's a boy again. Well, in Lewis's story, the lion's name is Aslan, and he is a picture, a representative of Jesus. He commands us to follow him, and he leads us to a crystal clear well where we can be made clean. But we must first realize our inability to change ourselves. And so he commands us to allow him to tear away the false and the decaying selves, the dragons that we have created. And then Jesus throws us into those baptismal waters, a picture of our cleansing. Made clean and made new, we now have the power to change. So what is the first miracle pointing to? I believe it's this, that a new creation has come. And the fulfillment of the ceremonial washings is here in your presence. There is one among us who now pours out the best wine and there is enough for everyone. You know, God's grace had always been evident throughout the old covenant. Don't ever let anyone try to convince you otherwise. There are unbelievable, incredible, beautiful pictures of God's grace all throughout the Old Testament. Yet with the coming of Jesus, there is a new age of grace that has broken in. Eternal life, a new quality of life is now possible through the one who has come to a wedding. You know, we can't help but think of how familiar a theme marriage is in the Old Testament. God uses the romantic love displayed in marriage to describe his own love and his own faithfulness towards his people. Isaiah says that in the same way a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. I've seen a lot of excited bridegrooms in my life. And it always reminds me of how excited God is about his bride. When the people of God stray from him and pursue other lovers, God is found weeping in silence as a devastated spouse would. John, the same writer in the book of, who, I'm sorry, John, who also wrote the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, he talks about the return of Jesus. 
and describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this marriage supper does not first show up in Revelation. It was talked about by the prophets, and and actually many first-century Jews believed that, that this great banquet would commence the Messianic age. It's why Jesus used that idea of a banquet and a wedding many times in his parables to communicate to um, his message. But the prophets characterized that this age to come would be one where the wine would flow liberally. And wine in the Old Testament represented the joy and the blessings of the Lord. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, John wrote this, again, moving towards the climax And the return of Christ. He says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Christ, the bride is the church, Christ is the bridegroom, and we will sit down together at the end of history at a festive banquet. And joy, joy will course through the veins of everyone at that banquet. Jesus himself pointed to this future banquet. Do you know where? It's such an intriguing time. When did Jesus point to this banquet? Do you remember? Again, it was on the eve of his own death at Passover when he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what he said about drinking this communion cup? In the language of a solemn oath, he said to his friends on that fateful night, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. While now we take little sips of that wine, as we wait with expectation on that day, according to Isaiah 25, we will eat a feast of rich food and drink aged wine well refined. In that same passage of Isaiah 25, the Lord says, He will swallow up death forever. At this time, he will take away our reproach and he will wipe away all of our tears. So I submit to you that I believe the sign that Jesus was pointing to in this very first miracle of water to wine was the cleansing of our hearts, the cleansing of our shame, the cleansing of our guilt. So how does this all change us? How does this change us? Let me give you three quick things here. Three ideas. Obedience, freedom, and joy. This will conclude our our final part. How does this all change us? The story and the sign. Number one, obedience. I think we should note here this interesting statement that Mary makes to the servants. After this exchange with Jesus, she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The things that Christ tells us to do will not always make sense. He does not always explain the reasons 
why he asked you to do something or to give up something of value or to forgive where it seems impossible or why he's withheld a blessing that he seems to so freely give to others. Yet in these situations, he tests our faith and he seeks to help us to know and to prove to him and to ask, do we love him for self-gain? Is that why we follow for self-gain? Or do we love him for the sake of love itself? So number one is, remember these words, do whatever he tells you. Secondly, there's the idea of freedom here. Freedom in several different respects. First is this, that Jesus lived in freedom because he operated according to his father's timing. Isn't that a profound thought? Jesus lived in freedom because he operated according to his father's timing. He loved people. He desired to serve them. He desired to please them. But he was not a slave to their approval, nor their demands, nor their expectations. Do you have that kind of freedom? You know, one of the things Jesus will model for us throughout this gospel is his intimate relationship with the Father and how doing his will supersedes everything else. Everything else. Can I submit to you this morning that when you live like this, it makes life a whole lot simpler. And it makes, my grammar may not be correct here, but it makes you a whole lot freer. And it's a good question this morning to ask, is there a relationship, is there a person that you fear or respect more than God? If so, it's a misplaced allegiance. It's a misplaced loyalty. And it will always produce chaos and disorder. And oh my, what freedom comes when we realize we can admit our shame. We can admit our guilt. You know, people's lives are literally shortened from trying to hide, from trying to conceal, or from spending their whole lives trying to justify themselves because of that inward shame they feel. People's lives get shorter because they've not dealt or processed or allowed Christ to heal them. When we realize that we deserve death, and separation from God, we see with clarity why Jesus died. And we see with clarity that Jesus Christ died to set us free. We can now bring all that we are, including the stuff that we would never want published, we can bring all that we are and know that God accepts us because a worthy, sinless substitute died in our place. We've talked a lot this morning about marriage, and so we should comment a little bit. If you're anxious this morning because your marriage is not very good, if you're troubled this morning because your marriage is heading south, or perhaps you desire to be married and um, you want to be married, but it just isn't happening, it hasn't happened, I just would ask you to keep in mind and to remind you there is only one person in the universe who can give you everything that you want and everything that you need. A husband or a wife can never meet that expectation. Romantic love is wonderful, yet it too is but a reflection 
of the great love that the Father has for us. So, obedience and freedom and finally, joy. It's a great question to ask this morning. What is the real joy in your life? What is the real joy in your life? You know, any other wine other than Christ, guess what? It'll run out. It'll run out. But this wine never will. You know, if you live long enough to realize that, I know some of you have. The things that we are convinced will give us life, that's what we're talking about, reclaiming life. The things that we're convinced will give us life. The things that have captured our dreams, romantic love, stature at work, achievement, financial security. What happens when you attain them? When the dream is realized? You come to that awful realization, don't you? That kind of terrible realization that there's still something in my life profoundly missing. And so if we don't respond rightly, we lust all the more. And we crave all the more. You know what that lust does? It corrupts us. We begin to disintegrate. Or we begin to get that kind of false self, that dragon skin that we talked about earlier. You know, when you face the difficulties of life, when you face pressures and stresses, where do you turn for comfort? You know, we all seek comfort. Even those of you who think you're the most Spartan amongst us, every one of us seeks to find comfort somewhere when the pressure and stress of life hits us. How about learning to sip a different wine? How about learning to sip the wine of the gospel? It is the hope of eternal life that begins the moment you transfer your faith to Jesus. Learn to sip the wine of the gospel. Learn to allow the hope that Isaiah described there in chapter 25. Learn to allow the hope that is to come in the future help you deal with the troubles in the present. Do you know how to drink the wine of that gospel? The gospel that gives us not just clean hands or clean dishes, but cleans our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these few moments that we could spend together this morning opening up your word and hearing your voice speak through your words. Thank you that your words impart life and they're words of power and they're words of grace. And I pray that our hearts and our affections would be stirred this morning to love you more deeply and to learn to drink of the wine of the gospel. And for those, Father, that are far from you, for those that have strayed, for those that have never, ever connected with you, for those that their minds and hearts are dominated by that sense of shame, that sense of unease at the core of their being, for those, Father, that have drank the wine from other sources and have realized now that it's empty, it's run out. Father, this morning, might they hear that command, not just an invitation, but a command. Go to that hill where the water is crystal clear. Go to that garden 
And then let me undress you. And let me throw you in those baptismal waters. Father, for those that have never connected with you, let them hear this command this morning and give them the power and grace to say, yes, Jesus, I want my heart and I want that shame and that guilt cleansed. I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to experience the kind of closeness to you and the kind of community that those high school students described earlier. So, Father, lead us now as we worship you and respond to the word that we've heard spoken this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you could just for a moment uh, pull out that Connect card. And this is your way of letting us know what God is doing in your life so that we can partner with you to take that next step or to pray alongside of you, to pray with you, to pray for you. And if there's a commitment there or a next step you want to take, a prayer request, please let us know. Um, We'll collect it along with our uh, offering. And um, uh, this offering is an opportunity for us to give back to God and to support the, uh, the word in the ministry of, of this church. We pray with me. Father, now receive not merely the gifts of our resources, but the gift we want to give you of our heart, God. Help us to give you our hearts. Speak to us. Help us to continue to reflect on your word in this moment. Amen.